Hello and welcome to Soul Food, the ghost light season. Different sort of show today. We'll get back to regular programming in our next episode. And with a pile of Pacific Theater stuff behind me now, I'm taking a little break to just do fun stuff like the podcast. So maybe I'll have me a hankering to cobble together a couple of shows this week, like in the old days. The old days. That's a strange way to talk about, like, a month ago. Not even pre-plague, just the early days of the plague. Oh, seems so long ago. Then we were children. That was a moment ago, before an outrageous novelty had been introduced into our lives. W.H. Auden. (laughs) W.H. knew what he was talking about. But like I said, a bit of a different show today. There'll be some tunes, and it looks like there's something in the mailbag. But most of the show is going to be set aside for a short story by W.P. Kinsella, one of my all-time favorites. I've gone back to read it many times over the past few decades. It's about a time when a different kind of plague came to baseball and what people did while they waited for the great game to come back. And come back it did. Giving it up for Mr. Ken Whiteley and his original Sloth Band. Thanks, Ken, for that 
live recording here at Soul Food Studios International. Thanks for making the flight out here to Richmond, British Columbia on this rainy day. That song is featured on Ken Whiteley's album Up Above My Head, a Canadian classic as far as I'm concerned. You can order that from Ken Whiteley's interweb page. All right, it's time for Mailbag, a regular feature here on Soul Food, the ghost light season. Oh, and look, it's a letter from my friend Marty. Wrote him a while back to find out how he and his wife Kathy are doing with this whole plague thing. I know Germany's got things pretty much under control compared to the rest of everybody. I mean, that's what Germans do, right? Keep things under control. But I wondered how he and Kathy are dealing with all this. <laughs> okay, what do we got here? Dear Ron, hi, buddy. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. Uh, things have been crazy over here. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others, and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. Well, wise words there from my German friend. I figured he'd have something smart to say. Funny, no mention of the Bundesliga. I thought Marty was a big RB Leipzig supporter. Okay, yeah, well, checking the postmark here. Uh, this was written way before they announced that football would be back in action a couple weekends ago. Way before. <laughs> I might need to just phone him up. I mean, did you hear that they are, they're back to playing football? Footy in Germany, in the Bundesliga. Uh, they're playing behind closed doors without... Without fans, without supporters in the stadium, they call them Geisterspieler. The Germans have a word for everything, Geisterspieler, ghost games. Kind of appropriate for here on our ghost light season. You know, me and Marty go back, way back. I grew up with the guy. I was a teenage Lutheran, coming soon to a drive-in theater near you. You haven't seen much of the guy in the last 40 years or so, but uh, I drop by his place when I visit Mom and Dad back home in Calgary. There's no friend like an old friend. Gonna smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. And close with love the way you do. I'm gonna 
Okay, speaking of Lutherans and Alberta, here's a tune from August 1979 at Hastings Lake Lutheran Bible Camp, a super rare bootleg recording of your good buddy and mine, Mr. Bruce Coburn. Then it's story time here on Soul Food, the ghost light season. Teach 
and the lawyers and the doctors How to raise a man from the grave Well, won't somebody tell me Answer if you can I want somebody to tell me What is the soul of man I want somebody to tell me Answer if you can Yeah, yeah, that's right. Give it up for Mr. Bruce Coburn. Yeah, I'd love to thank everybody here in our studio audience for giving Bruce such a warm welcome. Kind of a neat song, eh? Yeah, it's pretty great, Bruce. And don't forget, if you'd like to be part of our studio audience for some of these live performances, these unplugged performances here at the Soul Food Studios... Just uh, send a note to the mailbag or anything else that you want to get off your chest. Just just fire me a, a note at uh, soulfood at ronreed.org, ronreed.org. You know, today is an all-Canadian content sort of day. That's right, Carolyn Credico, Ken Whiteley, Bruce Coburn, and... Uh, this next story comes from one of Canada's national treasures. As you'll notice, we have quite a few national treasures. You know, when all this started, this whole, like, you know, stay in your houses and don't do anything because you might get sick thing, I started reading again. I had no interest in screens anymore except for hanging with my homies on Facebook, which got a lot better once people had nothing better to do. Did you notice? People stopped fighting with each other quite so much. They started posting music challenges, favorite LPs, dumb videos, great quotes. I mean, I, I do love me some Facebook. The neighborhood pub of the interwebs. But apart from that, I sure got tired of screens real fast. Zoom and email and COVID press conferences and news, news, news. So I did what I do, and I turned to the storytellers. You know what my literary comfort food is? Baseball writing. I, I was a rabid fan of baseball writing long before I was a fan of actual baseball. The writing is so good. In fact, for the All-Star break this year, uh, an All-Star break in the middle of a whole season that's a break, I'm going to do a special edition of Full Soul Food along the lines of Easter presents that, of course, was along the lines of Christmas presents. But this won't be about Christmas or Easter. It'll be about the game based on a show that we did at Pacific Theater back in our 1998 season, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You know, the writer who drew me into all that delicious baseball writing back in about 1986, I guess, was BC's own W.P. Kinsella. One day on CBC, I heard him talking about his new book, The Iowa Baseball Confederacy, and from what he said and from the part he read, I knew I had to read that book. I didn't know the infield fly rule from a ground rule double, but I knew good writing when I heard it. 
and this was very good riding. It was at a time when I couldn't afford to buy the brand new hardback, so I got me a copy of his previous book, Shoeless Joe, which starts like this. My father said he saw him years later, playing in a 10th-rate commercial league in a textile town in Carolina, wearing shoes and an assumed name. He'd put on 50 pounds, and the spring was gone from his step in the outfield, but he could still hit. Oh, how that man could hit. No one has ever been able to hit like Shoeless Joe. Three years ago at dusk on a spring evening, when the sky was a robin's egg blue and the wind as soft as a day-old chick, I was sitting on the veranda of my farm home in eastern Iowa when a voice very clearly said to me, If you build it, he will come. That has become one of my lifetime favorite books. And it also became a pretty good movie, too. But I soon found my way to his glorious short stories as well. Indeed, the New Play Center staged a few of them under the title The Thrill of the Grass. And this spring, when we found out that the baseball season was being canceled, that everything was being canceled, I turned back to Bill Kinsella and asked him once again to take me out to the ball game. And I so wanted to read that particular story to you all. So I took it upon myself to write to Mr. Kinsella's literary agent, and I made so bold as to ask. When I didn't hear back, that was no surprise. Literary agents have better things to do, and certainly more remunerative things to do than let every Tom, Dick, and Harry of a two-bit pirate radio broadcast steal their best material when there's not a dime in it for them. But it turns out the good people at the Carolyn Swayze Literary Agency Limited, the folks entrusted with the stewardship of W.B. Kinsella's treasure trove of tales, are not your run-of-the-mill literary agents. Not that I actually know any literary agents, run-of-the-mill or otherwise. I got a letter just this morning from Chris Rothstein of the aforementioned Carolyn Swayze Literary Agency Limited, and she made my day. Sorry for the delay. Yes, we are able to okay that. Always great to get more stories out to more ears and eyes. Just send us a link if and when you do. All the best, Chris Rothstein. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you, WP. The Thrill of the Grass by W.P. Kinsella. 1981. The summer the baseball players went on strike. The dull weeks drag by. The summer deepens. The strike is nearly a month old. Outside the city, the corn rustles and ripens in the sun. Summer without baseball. A disruption to the psyche. An unexplainable aimlessness engulfs me. I stay later and later each evening in the small office at the rear of my shop. Now, driving home after work, the worst of the rush hour traffic over, 
It is the time of evening I would normally be heading for the stadium. I enjoy arriving an hour early, parking in a far corner of the lot, walking slowly toward the stadium, raises sun dropping softly over my shoulders like tangerine ropes, my shadow gliding with me, black as an umbrella. I like to watch young families beside their campers, the mothers in shorts grilling the hamburgers, their men drinking beer. I enjoy seeing little boys dressed in the hometown uniform, barely toddling, clutching hot dogs in upraised hands. I am a failed shortstop. As a young man, I saw myself diving to my left, graceful as a toppling tree, fielding high grounders like a cat leaping for butterflies, bracing my right foot and tossing to first, the throw true as if a steel ribbon connected my hand and the first baseman's glove. I dreamed of leading the American League in hitting, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. I batted two seventeen in my senior year of high school and averaged 1.3 errors per nine innings. I know the stadium will be deserted. Nevertheless, I wheel my car down off the freeway, park, and walk across the silent lot, my footsteps rasping and mournful. Strangle grass and creeping Charlie are already inching up through the gravel, surreptitious, surprised at their own ease. Faded bottle caps, rusted bits of chrome, an occasional paper clip recede into the earth. I circle the ticket booth, sun faded, empty, the door closed by an oversized padlock. I walk beside the tall, machinery, green, board fence. A half mile away, a few cars hiss along the freeway. Overhead, a single-engine plane fizzes lazily. The whole place is silent as an empty classroom, like a house suddenly without children. It is then that I spot the door shape. I have to check twice to be sure it is there. A door cut in the deep green boards of the fence. More the promise of a door than the real thing. The kind of door as children we cut in the sides of cardboard boxes with our mother's paring knives. As I move closer, a golden circle of lock, like an acrimonious eye, establishes its certainty. I stand, my nose so close to the door I can smell the faint odor of paint. The golden eye of a lock inches from my own eyes. My desire to be inside the ballpark is so great that for the first time in my life, I commit a criminal act. I've been a locksmith for over 40 years. I take the small tools from the pocket of my jacket, and in less time than it would take a speedy runner to circle the bases, I'm inside the stadium. Though the ballpark is open air, it smells of abandonment. The walkways and seating areas are cold as basements. I breathe the odors of rancid popcorn and wilted cardboard. The maintenance staff were laid off when the strike began. Synthetic grass does not need to be cut or watered. I stared down at the ball diamond where, just to the right of the pitcher's mound, a single weed, perhaps two inches high, stands defiant in the rain-pocked dirt. The field sits breathless in the orangey glow of the evening sun. 
I stare at the potato-colored earth of the infield, that wide, dun arc, surrounded by plastic grass. As I contemplate the prickly turf, which scorches the thighs and buttocks of a sliding player as if he were being seared by hot steel, it stares back in its uniform ugliness. The seams that send routinely hit ground balls veering at tortuous angles are vivid, gray as scars. I remember the ball fields of my childhood, the outfields full of soft hummocks and brown-eyed gopher holes. I stride down from the stands and walk out to the middle of the field. I touch the stubble that's called grass, take off my shoes, but find it's like walking on a row of toothbrushes. It was an evil day when they stripped the sod from this ballpark, cut it into yard-wide swaths, rolled it, memories and all, into great green and black cinnamon roll shapes, trucked it away. Nature temporarily defeated. But nature is patient. Over the next few days, an idea forms within me, ripening, swelling, pushing everything else into a corner. It is like knowing a new, wonderful joke and not being able to share. I need an accomplice. I go to see a man I don't know personally, though I have seen his face peering at me from the financial pages of the local newspaper and the Wall Street Journal, and I have been watching his profile at the baseball stadium, two boxes to the right of me, for several years. He is a fan, really a fan. When the weather is intemperate, or the game not close, the people around us disappear like flowers closing at sunset. But we are always there until the last pitch. I know he is a man who attends because of the beauty and mystery of the game. A man who can sit during the last of the ninth with the game decided innings ago and draw joy from watching the first baseman adjust the angle of his glove as the pitcher goes into his windup. He, like me, is a first base side fan. I've always watched baseball from behind first base. The positions fans choose at sporting events are like politics, religion, or philosophy. A view of the world. A way of seeing the universe. They make no sense to anyone. Have no basis in anything but stubbornness. I brought up my daughters to watch baseball from the first base side. One lives in Japan and sends me box scores from Japanese newspapers and Japanese baseball magazines with pictures of superstars politely bowing to one another. She has a season ticket in Yokohama on the first base side. Tell him a baseball fan is here to see him is all I will say to his secretary. His office is in a skyscraper from which he can look out over the city to where the prairie rolls green as mountain water to the limits of the eye. I wait all afternoon in the artificially cool, glassy reception area with its yellow and mauve chairs, chrome and glass coffee tables. Finally, in the late afternoon, my message is passed along. I've seen you at the baseball stadium, I say, not introducing myself. Yes, he says, I recognize you. 
three rows back, about eight seats to my left. You have a red scorebook, and you often bring your daughter. Granddaughter, yeah, she goes to sleep in my lap in the late innings, but she knows how to calculate an ERA. She's only in grade two. One of my greatest regrets, says this tall man, whose mustache and carefully styled hair are polar bear white, is that my grandchildren all live over a thousand miles away. You're very lucky. Now what can I do for you? I have an idea, I say. One that's been creeping toward me like a first baseman when the bunt sign is on. What do you think about artificial turf? Oh, he snorts. That's what the strike should be about. Baseball's meant to be played on summer evenings and Sunday afternoons on grass, just cut by a horse-drawn mower. And we smile as our eyes meet. I've discovered the ballpark is open. To me, anyway, I go on. There's no one there while the strike is on. The wind blows through the high top of the grandstand, whining until the pigeons in the rafters flutter. It's lonely as a ghost town. And what is it that you do there alone with the pigeons? I dream. And where do I come in? You've always struck me as a man who dreams. I think we have things in common. I think you might like to come with me. I could show you what I dream, paint you pictures, suggest what might happen. He studies me carefully for a moment like a pitcher trying to decide if he can trust the sign his catcher has just given him. Tonight, he says. Would tonight be too soon? Park in the northwest corner of the lot about 1 a.m. There's a door about 50 yards to the right of the main gate. I'll open it when I hear you. He nods. I turn and leave. night is clear and cotton warm when he arrives. Oh my, he says, staring at the stadium turned chrome blue by a full moon. Oh my, he says again, breathing in the faint odors of baseball, the reminder of fans and players not long gone. Let's go down to the field, I say. I'm carrying a cardboard pizza box, holding it on the upturned palms of my hands, like an offering. When we reach the field, he first stands on the mound, makes an awkward attempt at a wind-up, then does a little sprint from first to about halfway to second. I think I know what you've brought, he says, gesturing toward the box. But let me see anyway. I open the box in which rests a square foot of sod, the grass smooth and pure, cool as a swatch of satin, fragile as baby's hair. Oh, the man says, reaching out a finger to test the moistness of it. Oh, I see. We walk across the field, the harsh prickly turf making the bottoms of my feet tingle. 
to the left field corner, where, in the angle formed by the foul line and the warning track, I lay down the square foot of sod. That's beautiful, my friend says, kneeling beside me, placing his hand, fingers spread wide on the verdant square, leaving a print, faint as a Veronica. I take from my belt a sickle-shaped blade, the kind used for cutting carpet. I measure along the edge of the sod, dig the point in, and pull carefully toward me. There's a ripping sound, like tearing an old bed sheet. I hold up the square of artificial turf like something freshly killed, while all the time digging the sharp point into the packed earth I have exposed. I replace the sod lovingly, covering the newly bared surface. A protest, I say. But it could be more, the man replies. I hope you'd say that. It could be. If you'd like to come back tomorrow night, tomorrow night would be fine. But there will be an admission charge. A square of sod, a square of sod, two inches thick, of the same grass, of the same grass. But there's more. I suspected as much. You must have a friend. Who would join us? Yes. I have two. Would that be all right? I trust your judgment. My father, he's over 80, my friend says. You might have seen him with me once or twice. He lives over 50 miles from here, but if I call him, he'll come. And my friend, if they pay their admission, they'll be welcome. And they may have friends. Indeed, they may. But what will we do with this, I say, holding up the sticky-backed square of turf which smells of glue and fabric? We could mail them anonymously to baseball executives, politicians, clergymen. Gentle reminders not to tamper with nature. We dance toward the exit, rampant with excitement. You will come back. You'll bring others. Count on it, says my friend. Well, they do come, those trusted friends and friends of friends, each making a live green deposit. At first, a tiny row of sod squares begins to inch along toward left center field. The next night, even more people arrive. The following night, more again, and the night after, there's positively a crowd. Those who come once seem always to return, accompanied by friends, occasionally a son or a young brother, but mostly men my age or older, for we're the ones who remember the grass. Night after night, the pilgrimage continues. The first night, I stand inside the deep green door listening. I hear a vehicle stop, hear a car door close with a snug thud. I open the door when the sound of soft-soled shoes on gravel tells me it is time. The door swings silent as a snake. We nod curt greetings to each other. Two men pass me, each carrying a grasshopper-legged sprinkler. Later, each sprinkler will sizzle like frying onions as it wheels a silver sparkler in the moonlight. 
During the nights that follow, I stand sentinel-like at the top of the grandstand, watching as my cohorts arrive. Old men walking across a parking lot in a row, in the dark, carrying coiled hoses, looking like the many wheels of a locomotive. Old men who have slipped away from their homes, skulked down their sturdy sidewalks, breathing the cool, grassy, after-midnight air. They have left behind their sleeping, gray-haired women, their immaculate bungalows, their manicured lawns. They continue to walk across the parking lot while occasionally a soft wheeze, a nibbling, breathy sound like an old horse might make, divulges their humanity. They move methodically toward the baseball stadium, which hulks against the moon-blue sky like a small mountain. Beneath the tint of starlight... The tall light stands which rise above the fences and grandstand glow purple, necks bent forward like sunflowers heavy with seed. My other daughter lives in this city, is married to a fan, but one who watches baseball from behind third base. And like marrying outside the faith, she has been converted to the third base side. They have their own season tickets, 12 rows up just to the outfield side of third base. I love her, but I don't trust her enough to let her in on my secret. I could trust my granddaughter, but she's too young. At her age, she shouldn't have to face such responsibility. I remember my own daughter, the one who lives in Japan. Remember her at nine, all knees, elbows, and missing teeth. Remember peering in her room, seeing her asleep, a shower of well-thumbed baseball cards scattered over her chest and pillow. I haven't been able to tell my wife. It's like my compatriots and I are involved in a ritual for true believers only. Maggie, who knew me when I still dreamed of playing professionally myself, Maggie, after over half a lifetime together, comes and sits in my lap in a comfortable easy chair, which has adjusted through the years to my thickening shape, just as she has. I love to hold the lightness of her, her tongue exploring my mouth gently as a baby's finger. Where do you go? she asks sleepily when I crawl into bed at dawn. I mumble a reply. I know she doesn't sleep well when I'm gone. I can feel her body rhythms change as I slip out of bed after midnight. Aren't you too old to be having a change of life? she says, placing her toast-warm hand on my cold thigh. I'm not the only one with this problem. I'm developing a reputation, whispers an affable man at the ballpark. I imagine any number of private investigators following any number of cars across the city. I imagine them creeping about the parking lot, shining pen lights on license plates, trying to guess what we're up to. Think of the reports they must prepare. I wonder if our wives are disappointed that we're not out discoing with frizzy-haired teenagers. Night after night, virtually no words are spoken. Each man seems to know his assignment. Not all bring sod. Some carry rakes, some hose, some hoses, which, when joined together, snake across the infield and outfield, dispensing the blessing of water. Others cradle in their arms bags of dirt for building up the infield to meet the thick living sod. 
I often remain high in the stadium, looking down on the men moving over the earth, dark as ants, each sodding, cutting, watering, shaping. Occasionally the moon finds a knife blade as it trims the sod or slices away a chunk of artificial turf and tosses the reflection skyward like a bright ball. My body tingles. There should be symphony music playing. Everyone should be humming America the Beautiful. Toward dawn, I watch the men walking away in groups, like small patrols of soldiers, carrying instead of arms the tools and utensils which breathe life back into the arid ball field. Row by row, night by night, we lay the little squares of sod, moist as chocolate cake with green icing. Where did all the sod come from? I picture many men in many parts of the city surreptitiously cutting chunks out of their own lawns in the leafy midnight darkness, listening to the uncomprehending protests of their wives the next day, pretending to know nothing of it, pretending to have called the police to investigate. When the strike is over, I know we will all be here to watch the workouts, to hear the recalcitrant joints crackling like twigs after the forced inactivity. We will sit in our regular seats, scattered like popcorn throughout the stadium, and we'll nod as we pass on the way to the exits, exchange secret smiles, proud as new fathers. For me, the best part of all will be the surprise. I feel like a magician who has gestured hypnotically and produced an elephant from thin air. I know I'm not alone in my wonder. I know that rockets shoot off in half a hundred chests, the excitement of birthday mornings, Christmas Eves, and hometown doubleheaders boils within each of my conspirators. Our secret rites have been performed with love, like delivering a valentine to a sweetheart's door in that blue steel span of morning just before dawn. Players and management are meeting around the clock. A settlement is imminent. I've watched the stadium covered square foot by square foot until it looks like green graph paper. I've stood and felt the cool odors of the grass rise up and touch my face. I've studied the lines between each small square, watched those lines fade until they were visible to my eyes alone, and then not even to them. What will the players think? as they straggle into the stadium and find the miracle we've created. The old-timers will raise their heads like ponies, as far away as the parking lot, when the thrill of the grass reaches their nostrils. And as they dress, they'll recall sprawling in the lush outfields of childhood, the grass as cool as a mother's hand on a forehead. Goodbye. Goodbye, we say at the gate, the smell of water, of sod, of sweat, small perfumes in the air. Our secrets are safe with each other. We go our separate ways. Alone in the stadium in the last chill darkness before dawn, I drop to my hands and knees in the center of the outfield. My palms are sodden. Water touches the skin between my spread fingers. I lower my face to the silvered grass 
which, wonder of wonders, already has the ephemeral odors of baseball about it. And they saw me pitch the way I did. They hired me just to strike out, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 